We're going to continue in in our question series, in um, big questions that are asked in Scripture, and we're going to be in Luke chapter 10 this morning. Luke chapter 10, starting in verse 25. Now what is going on in Luke chapter 10 is there is a person who is referred to as a lawyer, which in this first century world and setting was regarded to be an expert in the law of Moses. And so he approaches Jesus and he has not one, but actually two very big questions that he asks Jesus. Luke chapter 10, starting at verse 25 says, And behold, a lawyer stood up to to him to put him to the test. And he said to Jesus, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And so Jesus said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And so the lawyer answered that you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your strength, and with all of your mind, and then you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. And I just wish that that he, as well as us in the world today, could hear those words Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself, and you will have life in this world and in the world with which is to come one day. And yet, for just whatever reason, though, that is not appealing to us. We would much rather have hostility and tensions. And that's because in verse 29, the um, lawyer has another big question for Jesus. And this big question, though, is a loaded question, where it says in verse 29, but, but he, the lawyer, as he desired to justify himself, said to Jesus, and you can almost see this wolfish grin formulating on his face. You can hear the sarcasm in his tone as he smirks at Jesus and he says, and who is my neighbor, Jesus? Well, that word neighbor, it goes all the way back to Old Covenant times, as we find it used over and over again in Leviticus, for instance. And how that word neighbor is defined in the book of Leviticus is a a friend or a citizen. And yet the problem in this first century setting in Palestine is the way that 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 very concept had been interpreted by, by many people of a majority is that a neighbor is only a person who looks like me, who thinks like me, who dresses like me, who prays, who worships just like I do. That is who my neighbor is. And yet, what is the dirty implication of that concept, though? It's that whoever does not look just like me, whoever does not think, pray, dress just like me, That is not my neighbor. In fact, they are not one of us. They are one of them over there. That is not a person. That is an it, an other. And we have nothing to do with them whatsoever. And yet I love the ingenious way Jesus responds to this man's question, loaded question, big, very um, blunt question. As of all things, Jesus reacts to a story, or rather to his question, And he goes into storytelling mode, as he oftentimes does. And it doesn't matter if you are a Christian or you have never walked into a church in your life. 
you know exactly what this story is all about. It is the parable of the Good Samaritan, where there's a man who is walking on the road out of Jerusalem going into Jericho, and he falls upon robbers' hands, and they, they, they completely beat him. And he's placed half dead in a gutter as if he were already dead. And yet this man is in a tremendous amount of luck, though, because right now, here comes a priest coming his way. If anybody in the entire nation could have sympathy and compassion, it would be a priest. And yet the problem, though, is, is that a priest has just left there in Jerusalem, maybe a week or two serving in the temple. He is walking on foot home. He's about halfway home, and now he looks at this man half dead in the gutter. And it's like, this is just an, a huge inconvenience to me. If I go anywhere near a person who appears to be dead and I touch him, first century law, now I am unclean. I've got to go all the way back to Jerusalem. And so he does what, what a lot of people would have done where he just pretends he never saw this guy. and He just walks on his way. And yet, as luck would have it, he is once again in luck because here comes another man, a very high-profile religious figure. And this man is a Levite, Jesus says. He is an assistant of the priest. And, and yet, incredibly, though, he, he also sees that exact same man dying in a gutter and, and he just pretends he never saw him. He also walks on his way as well. And yet, then Jesus... He refers to a man who, a, who he identifies as a Samaritan. And when a Samaritan looks at this man who is dying in a gutter, something very different and beautiful happens in his heart well, where it says Jesus had, where um, he says how the Samaritan had compassion for this man. He places him on his donkey or on his mule. He tends to his wounds, takes him all the way into the city, gets him to an inn. And he is, is helping him get back on his feet. He stays with him for, for a night or two, and then he lets the innkeeper know, I've got to go, but, but as long as he needs to remain here in this end, healing and resting, I want you to put that on my tab. I will repay all of it. And you know, this is one of the most known of Jesus' teachings. And yet, strangely, this is also one of the most misunderstood and, and least um, practiced of the things that we find Jesus teaching as well. If all that we walk away from, from a parable of the Good Samaritan with is that, well, it's nice, you know, it's a good idea to be kind to some people. Or that we need to do one or two nice, nice acts in, you know, each year to earn a mansion in the clouds. Or if all that it is to us is that, well, the only way that, that we could ever apply this, this particular teaching of the Good Samaritan is if we ever see a person who is stranded on the side of the road and we, we um, help get them into a gas station parking lot, perhaps. We, or we let, let a woman who is standing behind us um, in line at a supermarket ahead of us, perhaps. If that is all that, that is conjured in our minds as we read a parable of the Good Samaritan, we have completely missed what Jesus is inviting us to. Jesus is not inviting us to one or two good, good acts and deeds a year. But rather what Jesus is inviting you to and me to is to open heart surgery. 
And that's because if we truly apply and, and if we adopt what Jesus is, is really saying here, it's going to hurt us. It's going to make our blood boil and our, and our, uh, our um, blood pressure skyrocket. We're going to experience a violent resistance deep in our soul to what Jesus is inviting and expecting us to undergo in our hearts. Now, I can guarantee you, as, as the lawyer stands there speaking with Jesus, by far the three most inflammable words of his parable are, but, a, and then he uses the word Samaritan, but a Samaritan. Now, as we read this with our American eyes, a Samaritan is just a nice, nice individual to us. But here's what is going on in this first century setting here. Jesus has just made reference to the absolute most hated, most detested enemy of the Hebrew people in Palestine. Hebrews spat on the ground that a Samaritan walked upon and vice versa. As we all know, a Samaritan was not exactly a full-blooded Hebrew, and so they would be looked down upon as a mutt, more or less. And what the sentiment was is that not only is that not my neighbor, but that is not even a human being or a person. Notice what Jesus is doing, though, in the parable of the Good Samaritan, though. This is his protagonist. Jesus takes a Samaritan person in a Hebrew audience, and he starts humanizing this guy. As it pertains to a priest and to a Levite, all that they, they had seen as they, they um, witness a man dying on there on the road, is he's just an inconvenience to me. I don't, I don't have you know, energy for this right now. And so they um, are just walking on their way. And as a Samaritan looks at this exact same man dying, he does not see an enemy of his. But rather, all that, that wells up in him is, that is my neighbor. That is a brother of mine. That is a friend of mine. And as he looks at him, it's as if he's looking into the face of his grandfather who is dying and beaten. And rather than sprinting as far away from this individual as he can get, notice he is sprinting as close to this man as he can possibly get. Where he heals, or rather he, he um, helps his wounds. He puts him up in an end, stays with him. However long he needs to be here, I will repay all of it. This is not the story of a guy who does a nice act of kindness for, for a year. But rather what Jesus is describing here is lavish compassion. Lavish, extravagant, sacrificial Christian love. And that's because notice how, how as this Samaritan stops and he stoops down and he helps this man, it is costing him his, his whole entire day now. It's costing him time. It's costing him money that he probably might not even have. Yet most striking of all, he is risking his life marching into, enemy, um, marching into an enemy city and a territory with a half-dead Hebrew on his shoulders. Anybody who is witness to this is automatically going to say, why did you try to kill this guy? This is lavish, sacrificial compassion. And I've often wondered how, you know, if Jesus were to stand up right now this morning in 2020 and to tell this exact same story to our American ears now, how would it sound? 
Maybe it might be something like this. Have there been a man who was driving through Georgia, and he's wearing a red Make America Great Again hat, when all of a sudden he is carjacked and his car is stolen, and they speed away in his car, leaving him half dead in a gutter. And yet all of a sudden, a minister at a church he attends pulls up at the red light, looks right at him, but, but as the light now is green, they just look the other way, speed on, on back to the sanctuary. Maybe half a minute later, here comes another man, also wearing a red hat, just like his. And yet he too, as the light, light becomes green, he also zooms off and he leaves them in the gutter. And here is where it gets very interesting, though, in this parable. Is that but an illegal migrant, but a gay couple, but a black Muslim who has a turban on his head, sees the man dying in the gutter, feels acute compassion for him, gets down on his hands and knees, gets him in his car, drives him off into the ER, says, however much it's going to cost, here is all of my information and my cards. I will repay all of it myself. It's on me. And we can do this vice versa too as well. I mean, it is a very, very strong, a very hard teaching Jesus is inviting us to here. In the text, notice how it ends, though, in verses 36 and 37, where Jesus says, Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And the lawyer said, The one who showed him mercy. And so Jesus said to him, Go and do likewise. And I spent my whole entire Christian life looking only at Matthew 28 as the Great Commission. Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to all of creation. But, but here is yet another Great Commission that is just as great. And just as essential to Christian living. Where, where now Jesus is saying, and now you, O Christian, go and be the Samaritan. Go and be the illegal immigrant. Be the ones in this world who bring my lavish, sacrificial compassion into a world of hatred and of racism, bigotry, prejudice. Show this this whole entire world what being a follower of mine is all about. Let them see this. And yet the problem is, is that we rebel against this, don't we? We resist this with every fiber of our being. And I say this because last time that I taught this this exact text about the parable of the Good Samaritan with a vibrancy that that is necessary, it, it got me called a dangerous preacher. It made me a dangerous minister teaching what Jesus says here. It... It has caused other men in other congregations to actually look at me as if they they wanted to to punch my lights out. When all I did was just humanize our our thems. That's all I did. I say this because as I look at my own life, I have hated people in my past. People who have brought me harm. I have despised people, wasted years of my life hating people. 
And that's because, after all, our struggle is is that, well, our, our neighbors are only the people who look like us. Our neighbors are only the people who, who worship like us, who think like us, who watch the exact same news stations as we watch. And as Jesus says, now, every single person, any person in this world, that is your neighbor. No, that only applies to the people who we choose to like. That only applies to the people who we agree with, who, who have not harmed us before. So I just want to ask you this morning, who are your Samaritans? I want you to also look at me and to ask me myself, who are my Samaritans? As we take our rightful stance right next to, to a lawyer, to a priest, and to a Levite, and we hear Jesus asking us here this morning, And who is your neighbor? What I am discovering is that as it pertains to all of these people in our world, in our society, in our nation, who are lying half dead in a gutter this morning, if we will move close enough to these people, if we will get as close as we can to them, they are all crying the exact same thing. When we get closer to these people, those words that we hear them groaning, crying out to God is, can't breathe. I can't breathe. Can't breathe. I can't breathe. My brothers and sisters, whoever in our society who is saying that, who is living an existence like this every single day, that is Jesus Christ living in those people. That is an opportunity to bless Jesus Christ himself in the distress of our world. That is an opportunity to be a good Samaritan in full, vibrant, full definition, living color. So I just want to ask us, are we willing to be inconvenienced? Are we willing to have our day disrupted and made about another person rather than we ourselves? Are we willing to be the change Jesus envisioned in the world before a world was ever created? So for just a few moments, I just want to try to answer the question, how can we respond to these situations that that just flare up where we have four seconds to react? Well, the first thing I want to recommend to us and to urge to us this morning is is that we ask ourselves, who is shaping me? What am I being influenced by? Am I being influenced by loving God with all of my heart, soul, mind, and strength and loving neighbor as self? Or am I being shaped by a political party? I think the number one deterrent to true Christian living in the 21st century American church, is that so oftentimes we are so obsessed with being right politically, even if it makes us wrong spiritually, that we are so fascinated being Trump-like or Pelosi-like, choose, choose you know, whoever you want, pick your poison, that we completely forget that, that we have been placed in this world, on this planet, to be Christ-like like nobody else but Jesus. And I just want to say that when over 400 years of cries from that gutter about racial inequality being wrong, about about cop brutality being wrong, about how it's wrong for, for, for a black man 
to to him, fear for his life when when all he's doing is just pulling up at a red light and a cop car pulls up behind him. When those cries are being interpreted as as controversial, when those cries are being ignored and demonized, we are not being shaped by Jesus. We're being shaped by hatred. We're being shaped and influenced by white supremacy. How sad would it be wasting all of our energy and effort in this world trying to make America great in terms of wealth and in nationalistic splendor? When Jesus has placed us in this world to make America great with his compassion, make this world great again with his influence in this world, with his love blazing in our hearts. Rather than trying to transform scripture and make it fit our politics, let's allow our politics to be transformed by the Sermon on the Mount. Rather than reacting to these ills of the world, asking ourselves, well, well, how would, would a political party I'm a member of respond to this? Ask ourselves, how does following Jesus react to this ill of the world? How would Jesus show up to this problem? Another thing I want to invite us to this morning, as well as me myself, is to ask ourselves, how many perspectives am I listening to in the world? And if the way that we answer that question is, well, I'm only listening to my own voice and to my own perspective, we have just detected what the problem is, brothers and sisters. I am discovering that there is so much wisdom. The more that I immerse myself in the perspective of our thems, of our others, of the people who do not look like us. Because what washes over you when you do this is that when I look in the mirror, I just see me as I've always seen myself. And yet as a Native American looks at me, what they see is the exact same thing that that first century Hebrew saw as they, they looked at a Roman officer. Where we just stole their country, raped them, genocided them. Only we had stayed for over 600 years. That is a perspective that comes to mind when you immerse yourself in another's perspective. I mean, I handed, accidentally handed a counterfeit bill to a bank teller two years ago. And yet they did not call the police on me. There was not a police officer putting his knee on my neck until I had passed out and had died. You see, when I listen to the perspectives of other people in this world, what I realize excruciatingly is that that they you know we're going through through a pandemic right now that is nightmarish enough but so many people who i know many friends of mine they have two pandemics right now and a health pandemic pales in comparison to, to how scary this pandemic of racism is i mean it's a it absolutely amazes me as i have responded to many friends of mine what you actually have to quiz your whole entire family. Practice what to say if a cop is ever speaking to you. It's yes, sir, no, sir, my hands are right here. And I've heard about another man who would not drive his car outside of a five-mile radius simply because he never wants to be in a situation like this where, where you're doing nothing. You are sitting at a red light and it's, sir, step out of the car. 
And I spoke to a person who I went to high school with a few days ago. And what, what he told me is that, David, on a consistent basis, I am being called the N-word at red lights now for just no reason by complete strangers. I spoke to another friend of mine who had said that, that my husband and I are more afraid living in, in America in 2020 than we were living in America in the 1960s. Man and I had sat many years ago with, with a, um, a friend of ours who is an exile out of Cuba in the 1950s. And she told us story after story after story, being, being chased by police who had chains in their hands. 14 years old, being chased by officers. Coming to America as a citizen at age 15, knowing that I may never get to even see mom and dad ever again. And yet just last week now, she, she has PTSD and shingles because what is happening on the news, how police are conducting their, their work, it reminds her of 1950s Cuba under Fidel Castro. It does not look like America to her any longer. And I mean, you just put all of these perspectives all together. And, and I just want to ask us this morning, are we listening to these voices? Or are we just bloviating? Are we hearing their perspectives? Or are we just deflecting with, hey, 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 all lives matter. Well, I mean, nobody ever said that, that only black lives matter. What that means is black lives matter too. Black lives matter just as much as anybody else's life. Let's start acting like it. And when all you do is just regurgitate all lives matter, when you, know, you, you um, hijack the argument and make it all about semantics, you don't have to change at that point. You don't have to do all of the, the heavy emotional lifting that is required to be a follower of Jesus Christ. I asked a man this closest friend for her perspective, and, and here's what she says. Her name is Nicole. And she said, David, for all of us who are of color, none of this is new. What's new is technology, and now more people can choose to see the truth or not. They can choose to pay attention to the deceptive, evil, insidious messaging that the media and that hate-filled people have been using since the beginning. Messaging like, well, if he didn't use a counterfeit bill, or if she didn't live in a drug-infested neighborhood, or if he was not selling cigarettes in the street, or if he was not wearing a hoodie, then they would still be alive. These reasons to, to kill a person and take a life are still being repeated by so many people who refuse to believe that a reality other than theirs exists. That the system that they live and thrive under must be equal for all, and yet it is not equal and it never has been. At last, what she says is, what can we do? She says, let's be honest, these atrocities are still going on because they have been allowed to go on. If you want change, get others who actually stand for, for justice and for truth in those offices. All of us must be slow speaking and quick listening to, to all of those hurting around us. Mourn with those who mourn and face the reality that America has never been indivisible with liberty and justice for all. At last, what she says is, this is a demon that can only go out through prayer 
and through fasting. And so learn others' perspectives. Last of all this morning, what, what I want to invite us to is to ask ourselves, what does my circle look like? And if all the people who we are surrounding our lives with look just like me and look just like you, something is very wrong with that. Last Sunday night, um, I was sitting there with, with Amanda and we're watching a young college couple, just, just 22 and 20 years old in Atlanta. And they are just driving home after eating at a restaurant. When all of a sudden cops, like, like nine or 10 officers, swarm their, their car and destroy their, their car. Tase him until he has a seizure as she screams in agony. As I think about George Floyd and all of these names and Breonna Taylor, list goes on and on and on. I, I see Breonna Taylor and George Floyd. I see Messiah Young, but, but more than anything, I see a friend of mine, Brandon Banks. I see Nicole and Anthony Jones. I see Walter Horsey and Bob Thompson as that cop has his knee on that guy's neck. And as I'm watching all of this last Sunday night, I, I felt like sobbing on the floor and punching a hole through the wall at the same time. And yet that's when it really registered in my mind and I understood in a way that I had not before. Listen, this is how I feel watching all of this unfold on videos for just two or three minutes. And yet this is how so many friends of mine have felt every single day of their lives, where you just want to sob on the floor and punch a hole through the wall at the same time. And yet I, I love this story about a parable of the Good Samaritan, though, because when he goes closer to this guy and he helps him, he is stepping over societal lines. He is moving closer to him rather than away from him. And when we live in this way, my friends, we're going to be amazed because it might not end racism instantaneously. There's always going to be problems in the world, but, but as much as it depends on me, I am bringing Jesus with me everywhere that I go. I close with this thought this morning. Last Sunday night, as I, I felt so much sorrow and so much anger in the same heart, I could hear the words of Jesus resonating as I looked out our window. And who is your neighbor, David? And the house across from where we live just so happens to be the chief of police here in Westchester, PA. And in a time when, when I was not in the mood to speak to any police officers in that moment. I felt prompted by the Holy Spirit to just write this guy a letter. He was not home at the time. And I looked at him in a different way. What registered in my mind is not every single police officer is looking for a person to lynch. Not every single minister is a pedophile. Not every single person who is opposed to racism is a looter or a rioter. And so I just wrote him a letter and said, I, I can't even imagine how much stress you also have been under at work every single day. And this is such a problem in the world. I believe that you are doing your job the right way. 
And so I support you in this. I want to encourage you in this. I am praying for you every single day. I appreciate you so much, sir. I find it so interesting that all of this in the parable is, is happening on the road that leads to Jericho, right? Jericho is, is that city where, where once upon a time the walls came a-tumbling down. Jesus says that if you want to inherit eternal life, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. And by the way, your neighbor is anyone and, and your neighbor is everybody. Do this and you will live in heaven as well as on earth. See, if we live this way, all of those walls of racism, hatred, bigotry, selective compassion, all of these ills of society are not life. All, all that is is just living with hell in our souls. But when we live this way, those walls of Jericho are going to come tumbling down in our souls. And that's because, my brothers and sisters, there is nothing more incredibly powerful in all this world than when God's people sprint towards the hurting, towards anybody in our broken world who is crying to the heavens, I can't breathe. I can't breathe. I can't breathe. And who turn this world upside down with lavish, sacrificial, extravagant compassion of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ says, and now go, O sons of God, and now go, O daughters of God, and do likewise.